If you would be so kind as to turning your Bibles to Hebrews 8, that's where we're going to be today. And uh, before I get too far away, again, Happy New Year. Thank you. Um, If you have known me for any amount of time, and there are a few of you who have known me for a, a long time, I used to be quite the curmudgeon about certain holidays. It had nothing to do with the actual holiday, so let's be clear. It had more to do with the commercialization of the holiday. For instance, Valentine's Day, what is that for? Do you not love your spouse all the time? Uh, like, uh, I'm still a little bit of a curmudgeon about Valentine's Day. Uh, but like, even Christmas came under question for me at one point. And I love Christmas, don't hear me. Uh, I, I have been changed by the blessing of God. Um, New Year's Day is one of those things that is still kind of a up in the air. Because we all come to church on New Year's Day, and we typically get a New Year's sermon. New Year, New You. Uh, new Year, you, na- you name it. Uh, it's not necessarily a, a sermon in which everybody likes to just like get a little too, get deep into the Word. And today, I don't want to get too deep in the Word because... Honestly, in adult discipleship, we've been going really deep on one chapter for two weeks. We're going to have to go through a whole another week and maybe even another week after that just to kind of mine it for all it's worth. But today I want to go back to that chapter so that we don't miss the forest for the trees. I want us to see the big picture this morning on what Hebrews 8 has for us. What Hebrews 8 is there and what it's designed to do. It's not for us to argue about whether infant baptism is a thing. It's not for us to argue about whether Baptist polity is really, you know, about regenerate church membership or not. Uh, those are all things that we can talk about. Those are all things that I, I actually very, I very much believe are in the text. Um, I may actually allude to them uh, every now and then, but that is not the point of Hebrews 8. The point of Hebrews 8 is pretty evident. It's verse 6. If you want to know the whole point of Hebrews, it's verse 6. Jesus is better. He is better because Jesus is a more excellent mediator, number one. He is a more excellent mediator, number one. He mediates a more excellent covenant, number two. And he... His covenant is a more ex- based on more excellent promises. So you, you hear, hear what's going on. Jesus is a more excellent mediator. He mediates a more excellent covenant, and it's based on more excellent promises. And so we're going to start this year by remembering just who is Jesus and what does he do. We're not going to talk too much about the intricacies of all that. But I want to remind you that, remind you of what Christ has done and who he is so that we can walk into this new year with a fresh perspective on how Christ has actually changed every one of our lives, okay? So with that, Hebrews 8, um, I think it's before we get to even reading the the text itself, Let's, let's get some context Uh, The first seven chapters is all about who Christ is in relationship to angels and Moses and uh, the priesthood and all these other things. And then the 
final chapters are all about what Christ does and what, what are the benefits of being in Christ. And so we've been very, very meticulous since September to mine all these things for what it's worth in adult discipleship. And I want to invite you, come back to adult discipleship. It's not a boring time. Um, in fact, I would say that it's probably one of the more fruitful times that I've had with a small group in a long time. So no offense to my small group. I love you all. First Samuel's great. But Hebrews makes me think about 1 Samuel in a way that I would never have thought about 1 Samuel if I was just reading 1 Samuel. Uh, Hebrews sheds light on all of the Bible, specifically the Old Testament and the New. And so with that, let's read Hebrews 8 together. Would you stand as I read? Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. So you can see in Hebrews 8 that this is a fairly complicated chapter. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but it has two types of writing in it, right? It has a citation from Jeremiah 31. It's the longest citation in the entire New Testament of the Old Testament. And it also is comprised of a summary of the first seven chapters of Hebrews at the very beginning. And so we're going to start with that summary, and we're going to move our way through the passage. Remember those three points that I said? Jesus is a more excellent mediator. That's where we're going to start first. Jesus is a more excellent mediator. Why does it matter that Jesus is a more excellent mediator? Number one, the people of the day that were being, that were 
that he was writing to, that he was sermonizing, that he was preaching to, the author that is, were concerned about worship way more than we were, than we are. In fact, all of their lives centered around a couple of things. Feast days, sacrifices, making trips to those places to carry out those things. But their, their lives revolved around worship of God and it's the true worship of God. This is true not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. So you think about Roman society. All of, like, they, they accuse the Christians of being atheists, right? Because we only worship one God and not the pantheon of gods like Zeus. And, well, that was Greek. Uh, who's the Zeus counter? Who's Zeus's counterpart? Jupiter. Thank you. Um, but we don't, they don't have, we have one God. They have a pantheon of gods, right? And so we were denying that their pantheon of the gods were gods at all. And so they were like, well, they're atheists. But the whole point of this is that their entire lives, Jew or Gentile, were revolving around worship. And it was very, very much in front of their eyes. In fact, these feast days usually culminated in the, the high feast days, one of them being Yom Kippur, the, 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 the Feast of the Day of Atonement, okay? And Yom Kippur uh, was, was about atoning for the sins of the people of Israel, right? And so you would take your, your, your sacrifice on a normal feast day and you would take it up there and they would slaughter this goat. They'd have the blood flow over this altar. It was very, very vivid. It was supposed to symbolize your sins being washed away, being covered by this blood, right? And then the inside of the, the animal would be burnt and it would, be, it would go toward God in heaven as a sense, uh, and, and, and in a sense that he was taking away the sin of the people. You can read about this back in Leviticus, um, which I encourage you to do, by the way. Uh, Leviticus is not a boring book, contrary to most you know, what you might believe. But the Day of Atonement was a big day. Why? Because everybody knew that their sin needed to be dealt with. Today, we're very unaware of our own sin. You agree with me? We're very unaware of like, just like how we're worshiping in general. And so, as, as far as people go, we need to be redirected back toward what Jesus paid for and so that we have more gratefulness in our hearts for what God has done, right? Uh, so worship was a huge deal and they were concerned about this. And so they saw, okay, well, remember the author of Hebrews is writing to Hebrew Christians who are being tempted to be pulled away from the faith by the smells and the bells, by the, by the blood on the altar, by the smell, the fragrance, uh, if you want to call burning flesh fragrance, uh, of the, the, the burning meats and all this stuff. And the person doing this was the high priest. So they knew that they had to have somebody in place in between them and God to atone for their sins. They couldn't do it themselves, right? We try to do a whole bunch of stuff by ourselves. Some of it's simple things like hanging a coat rack um, in our houses. And by all means, please try to do those things, handyman things. But you cannot atone for your own sins. You cannot make your own way to God. You cannot do any of that. And, and we, 
are so prone to do it ourselves that it, it just comes naturally to us. It came naturally to them also. Hence why they needed the altar and they needed all the reminders and they needed the high priest to stand in the way, right? So they have these questions like, okay, so Jesus is, the, Jesus is better, but I, I don't see the sacrifice being made for my sins. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, he's made a sacrifice. In fact, he's going to go on in chapter nine and he's going to ex- explain how that, that sacrifice was made. But it wasn't just that you have a sacrifice. You have a perfect mediator. You have a perfect high priest who stands in the way. Why? Because this mediator, like unlike any other mediator before him, is eternal. This mediator never died. That's never going to die. He died once for all for sins. But once he died, he rose again from the grave. He defeated death. Every other priest gave in to death and never raised again. So he is completely fitting for the role of high priest because he's a high priest who will never die again. He's a glorified high priest. Not only that, is that he is a glorified high priest who has is not a steward of the thing that is being made, the steward of worship. He is the object of worship. Moses was a steward of the things of worship. And that's what we see in our text this morning, um, is that we have such a high priest, Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. In other words, his work is finished, right? He doesn't need to do anything else. And he's at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, and that work is finished, and now he has all authority. And he's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Then he goes on and he says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. All of the tabernacle and the temple worship was to serve as a reminder of the things in heaven. They were all there and set in place to show the people of God what it meant to worship God. Right? That this what it meant to worship God and worshiping God are different things. We understand uh, because you can take one and turn it up on its head. This is why God said, or it's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, "Have you not read so many times?" Because they were not worshiping in spirit and truth. They were just taking the law of Moses and saying, "If I do these things, God will have favor on me." And the reality is, as God was going, He already said, "You will be my people." And this is how you worship me, okay? They didn't get that. It was obvious from the very beginning. The covenant was broken over and over and over. And so the people needed a true mediator, one who was not going to die, one who was, the way that they describe it in chapter seven, was by the power of indestructible life, he is the one who mediates on our behalf now. He is a high priest that cannot be shaken. Moses was just a steward of the tent. 
Jesus is the tent. We're told this in John 1, that he tabernacled amongst us. And that he is called the word, which is at the very beginning of Hebrews, is exactly what the angels were said to have brought. They were said to have brought and delivered the message of God to the people of God. And so therefore, the angels were important. The problem is, is they were not nearly as important as the word it was brought, right? And in fact, they were just delivering a message. Jesus is the message. He is unmediated. He is unmitigated. He is unshakable. He is the absolute word of God. So he's the word. He is the guarantee of that, of that word coming to pass. He is not a steward. He is the thing. It's the, the object of worship itself. And he is all these things because he is eternally going to live and ever plead for you and me as our mediators. So one point of application that we take from this text in our worship is that God directs our worship, okay? We don't get to choose how we worship Jesus. Jesus has directed our worship. And so just like Moses was told, hey, to pattern its, pattern the temple, pattern the, the tabernacle after the things that you see, we also pattern our worship how we live and get changed by how Jesus has commanded us to live and change. So in a microcosm, in a very small way, we do this in our services, right? We read the scriptures, not because we think the scriptures are worth reading necessarily, like just because they are, by the way, but because God says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, right? In First Timothy, we pray the scriptures because in Colossians it says, devote yourself to the prayers. We sing the scriptures because it says to sing to one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs of thankfulness in our hearts to God, right? So we do these things, these three things. We read, we pray, we sing. You know, and we also preach because why? God said, preach the word in and out of season. So we devote ourselves to the preaching of the word. And Finally, we see the word or we experience the word, the gospel itself, in the ordinances of baptism and communion. So every now and then we get to see baptism happen by God's grace. But by God's grace, every week we get to live the actual gospel out when we take communion. We see the, the Lord's body broken and we see the blood shed and we're reminded of all that that means for us. See, our worship is being directed by God. And in this microcosm of our Sundays, that is supposed to fill our weeks, right? So when we have a problem, when we have a worry, we go to God with that worry in prayer. We seek the Lord's wisdom in his word. You see where I'm going? We preach to ourselves the gospel, knowing that the promise is there and that we can obtain it by holding on and holding fast to what God has said will happen. Do you understand? This is why we do these things. It's not just because I was so genius that I just came, it up, came up with it, or Johnny was so smart that he just read the Bible until he figured out, oh, these are the things. No, we do these things because God has commanded us to do these things in service. So we do, we do that so that we can be shaped, 
not just mere command, but so we can be shaped into Jesus's image. Because he's our mediator, right? So he stands in between us and God. A mediator is someone who mediates. So if you think about the media, what does the media do? It's outside a lie. Uh, they're supposed to they're supposed to give you the news, right? Something happens and they relay to you the news, okay? A mediator is someone who stands in between like that, except for we have a perfect mediator, one who does not lie. One who actually communicates everything that we ever will need, and we'll get into those things as we go. But he, Jesus is a more excellent mediator than we've ever had and we will ever need because he is everything that we have ever wanted or ever desired or ever thought of. So if you're a believer in this room, what are you to do with this? He, he's a mediator. So guess what that means for you? That means you can go to him in prayer at any time and he will hear you, number one. There is not a prayer that he does not hear from his people. In fact, he will answer those prayers more than likely in a way that you probably didn't expect. Um, for instance, Lord, give me the strength to face today because I have been sick for since Christmas, if you did not know. I've literally laid on my couch or in my bed and tried to muster up the strength to write a sermon at some point. And some of you can relate. But at, this, at the same time, I just was praying, Lord, give me the strength to stand and to preach your word on Sunday from 11 to 11.30, 11.45, whatever it is that you give me. And so here I am, by God's grace, standing. But I did not think it was going to go the way it went, to be honest. I, in fact, was anticipating hearing from Forrest, for, Corey, I'm sick too. You're going to have to sing. No way. We're going to prayer service all the way, baby, because I can't sing a lick right now. But God was gracious, and he has given uh, his ear to his people, and that any prayer that you offer will be heard. Now, what Forrest said earlier was exactly true. If you pray according to his word and according to his will and according to his promises, he will give you those things. That does not mean that he's going to make you healthy necessarily. Does not make you, because I'm definitely not healthy. I'm not going to shake anybody's hand after this. Um, he's not going to make you wealthy because guess what? All the treasures in heaven are Christ and Christ alone. Um, all the treasures of the earth are Christ and Christ alone, not yours. He's not going to give you what you think you need. He's going to give you exactly what you need when you need it. And so here we are today. You should go to your father in prayer. You have a mediator who is waiting and interceding for you right now. He's interceding for you on the basis of something that you could not have thought up yourself. And he will be doing so forever. That takes us to point number two. Jesus mediates a more excellent covenant. Now, this is verses six to nine, if you're writing it down. Um, verses six to nine is... Jesus mediates a more excellent covenant. Let's talk about what is a covenant. There are a lot of ideas of what a covenant could be. A covenant could be an agreement simply, and this is where we're going to go. Uh, simply, it can be an agreement between two people. Not like a contract, because a contract can be broken, right? It can be broken in a way that, like, you can leave the two contracts, 
right? Wait, uh, you can uh, separate yourself from the contract and there's no consequences. You know, sometimes in the contract, contracts you can write in, well, there's contracts, um, there's, there's an agreement that if you break your lease, then you're going to pay first and last month's rent, for instance. That's a possibility, but that's not a covenant. A covenant is a guarantee between two parties, an agreement, agreed guarantee between two parties that there will be something that happens regardless if these two parties are faithful to this covenant or not. And those things that are going to happen are um, positive or negative, okay? So it can be as simple as agreement between two people, two parties, to bring about something that will happen, like an oath or a promise. In our case, God gives uh, works with his people through covenants. He covenanted with Adam at the very beginning in the garden, right? He said, what? Keep this land. Do not eat of that tree. What does he do? They eat of the tree, right? Uh, so they break the covenant. Now, did they break the contract? What would happen if you broke that contract? God could just go, broke the contract, walk away, right? But he didn't. He, he, the whole world was then pervaded by sin, invaded by sin. And so this, that was what was promised, that you will surely die. Sin is the mechanism of death. So you have this problem that you're trying to, try, you're, you're trying to avoid within a covenant. And the consequences of those are much more dire than a natural contract. But this is how he's dealt with his people from the very beginning. Adam, Abraham, Noah before him, Moses, David, and now us, right? See, this covenant that God is speaking of, the old covenant particularly, is outlined as a faulty covenant. Look at me. Verse 6 says this again. It, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, and the covenant he made, mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them out took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. See, this new covenant being brought is much different than the old covenant. All the old covenants, um, I think I misspoke in our adult discipleship, everybody was there. All the old covenants have some sort of consequence to them. Some sort of confidence. If you're not faithful to the covenant, then there will be a consequence of not being faithful to that covenant. Particularly in the, the old covenant that he's talking about right now is the Mosaic covenant. And there's an entire two chapters about blessings and curses about being in the covenant. If you do these things, then you will be blessed. You will have land. You will not be, pro there will not be problems. Your, your uh, women will get birth. There's a whole bunch of promises, right? And then but there's at the same time curses. If you do not do these things, then you will be cursed. You'll be kicked out of the land. Your, your women will not bear children. Like there's a lot of really bad curses. And now we can, we can go too far with this and we can say that those blessings and curses have, uh, now come upon us. But guess what? They came upon Christ. Um, 
and so y- you or I are not enact like actually under those curses or those blessings anymore in the same ways. Now, if you're an unbeliever in the room, you you might actually be under those curses, not because you you will you are under those curses because you have no relationship with the Lord, no relationship with Jesus, who actually is the one who is the perfect mediator. If you don't have a perfect mediator, you are being, you know, hit by the wrath of God, not by the mediated love of God. Do you understand? Wrath comes on unbelievers. Believers receive discipline and love. There's a difference. Um, but this new covenant is in place because the first covenant had a fault. And that fault was this. It was breakable. Number one, it was breakable. It was breakable, and so in the, in this case, it was breakable because you had the two parties, right? You do this, you get blessed. You don't do this, you get cursed, right? But in our case, look at what I what what does Jeremiah say? Jeremiah, this is this that quotation there. He says, "I will establish a new covenant." Is that Jeremiah speaking? No, that's the Lord. That's the covenant God of Israel. That's Yahweh Himself saying. I will establish a new covenant. God's going to do it all on his own. He's going to bring this covenant about, not like the covenant that he had with his, that he made with the fathers, but a new covenant made through a new mediator. This new covenant is not a renewed covenant. There's lots of covenant renewals in the Old Testament. This is not a renewed covenant. This is a absolutely new covenant. Now, there are a lot of arguments out there that said that this word means renewed. That is not true, and it cannot be true because it's not a noun. It's not a verb, rather. It's an adjective. An adjective is a descriptive word that describes covenant, new covenant, not renewed covenant, not being renewed. It is a new covenant. So it's wholly new. It is not like the covenant that he made with the fathers. In fact, it is without fault. This one is without fault because God is without fault. This one is without fault because he is the one that will establish it. It is without fault because it will come to pass no matter what happens. And so Christ is a more excellent mediator who mediates a more excellent covenant that you and I cannot break. When you've been put in, you can't get out. You won't want to get out, but you can't get out by any of your doing or by anybody else's doing. God himself will hold on to you forever. And that's partially why we sing this song, He Will Hold Me Fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. He'll never let my soul be lost. His promises will last. There's another version of it that says his covenant will last. Bought by, bought by his blood, right? That it will never be lost. He will hold me fast. It is a beautiful song and we sing this because he is a mediator of a better covenant, a more excellent covenant. And then we get to our third and final point. Jesus' covenant is has better promises, has more excellent promises. Jesus' covenant has more excellent promises. So he is a more excellent mediator he of a more excellent covenant over that gives more excellent promises. And this is 
what we see. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor each and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. You hear all the promises? I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. Where were the laws kept in the old covenant? On stone, on tablets. And they had to look at each other and say, know the Lord. And you knew the Lord by looking at his law. Now you will know, all will know him. They will know him because he has given them and written all of his laws on their heart. What does that mean? Ezekiel 36, we read, of it, read it earlier. He will take out the heart of stone in the believer and replace it with a heart of flesh. Do you have a heart of flesh this morning? One that longs and desires for God to be glorified. He says, not only that, he says, I will put my spirit within them. That's the seal. That's the seal of the law of God, the law of love being placed on the believer, the one that desires and wants God to be glorified. That spirit cannot be removed because it is not of ourselves. It is of God. He says, I will put my laws. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Amen. There is nothing more than we should want but to be the people of God. We've had changed hearts. And this brings up a point that the old covenant could not do. Why couldn't they carry out the laws? It's because they didn't have new hearts. Now, some did, right? David was called a man after God's own heart. But Ahab, a man who was still in the covenant, the old covenant people, a king of God's people, was called wicked above all men. Okay? You hear the difference. David's called a man after God's own heart. When he uh, sinned with Bathsheba, what happened? He repented. Psalm 51 is the product of that repentance. Ahab never repented. Ahab never once had a need for God. He was a man of himself. He did not have the law written on his mind or his heart, but David did. He had... He didn't, he was not part of the people of God, even though he was called a part of the people of God. No, he was lost within the covenant. But now everybody in the new covenant will have the law of God in their hearts, will have the spirit of God in their souls. They will all know him from the least of them to the greatest, from the child who accepts the Lord early to the, to the man who accepts the Lord on his deathbed, they will all know him. From the least of them to the greatest, from the poor to the rich, to the needy, to the needless. And how will they all know him? Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. See, the the blood being poured upon the altar was the mercy of God covering the sins of the people. 
the I will remember their sins no more part of it never happened because the sins were being burnt into the atmosphere so God would have wrath upon this animal, not upon the people, right, of the old covenant. But now that wrath has been poured out on our perfect mediator. He took all of our sins, believers, hear me. He took all of your sins, past, present, and future, upon him on the cross so that you and I might be able to have communion, live with God forever. He did that so he would be glorified forever, so that you and I would not have to worry about earning his favor, but you would already know you are favored by God. There is nothing else that you should want but to be known by the one who is all-knowing, the one who loves infinitely, the one who has, is good and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, one who cares for his people. See, his people are marked out by regeneration, regeneration of the heart. They are changed people. They're not a little bit different than they were when they were kids or when they were teenagers or whenever their conversion happened. They are different people. Their desires change. And this process of changed desires first looks like justification, right? First looks like God giving them a new spirit. And then the process of part that that spirit works in them and changes their desires, changes them, changes their hearts. That looks like sanctification. Looks like we've been built up into the image of Christ. And that happens over time through his word. That's why we put make worship the way we do. So that we might be changed by the word of God itself. See, he has mercy on his children. He does not remember their sins. We sing a song, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Why? Because he doesn't remember my sins anymore. He is amazingly fit. Christ is amazingly fit to be our perfect mediator of a perfect covenant because he has given us perfect promises that he himself enacts. So when you're straying from sin or straying because of sin, believer, hear me, you can come back immediately. There's no reason why you can't turn around and say, I repent. I, I, I'm sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. He's not going to squash you like a bug. Like I, I've met too many people in my short time in ministry, and it's heartbreaking, where they believe that if they were to turn from their sin or if they were to admit all that they have done to God, that God wouldn't love them anymore. Let me tell you, or, or that they, he would be angry with them and pour out his wrath on them. He's already poured his wrath out on his son, not on you. And he... Because his son stands in the gap between you and him, you can go back to his son and you can say, Lord, forgive me. And you can do it immediately. And he will be forgiven. Because, look, look, the spirit of God within you that's telling you to go back and it's not your conscience, it's the spirit of the Lord telling, hey, go to the Lord, admit your sin Admit your guilt and be forgiven. That is not supposed to be something that is hard for us to do, but that should be made easier. Remember, the Lord is your 
perfect mediator. He's a more excellent mediator of a more excellent covenant, one that is unbreakable, that has unbreakable promises, more excellent promises. Those promises being we have the spirit within us. We are his people. We know him. That's what that means. And that our sins are truly forgiven once for all. See, the old, the old covenant was made obsolete the moment that God said a new covenant was coming. There is something wrong with it when he has to say there is a new covenant. And in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there is a new covenant coming. That new covenant has new people, and those people will be God's and God's alone. Are you a part of that people? Do you feel that assurance that you can go to God no matter what happens? Or do you just feel shame? That shame is not something, not a product of God. It's a product of your own self-hatred, maybe even Satan. You can, might have guilt. That is very true. You and I are both very guilty. But Jesus has already taken that guilt upon him. In his That's what he mediates, is he mediates that guilt that transaction. And so you can go to him in prayer. Are you worried about what you're supposed to do next? Go to the Lord. Look, search out his word. If you don't know what the wise thing to do is, go to Proverbs. Just start reading. I'm pretty sure it'll probably tell you something about wisdom, seeing as the whole thing's about wisdom. If you don't know how you're supposed to progress in your Christian life, and how to, be, to remember these things that we've been talking about today, that Jesus is a more excellent meteor of a more excellent covenant of more excellent promises, then it sounds like you were designed for community, like every one of us. And that you cannot be apart from the community and be a thriving Christian. It's impossible. God made us for one another. Notice that singing part, sing to one another. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratefulness in your heart. That's Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 if you really wanted to dig. But for us today, we need to remember that our covenant mediator, Jesus Christ our Lord, is exactly what we need no matter what is happening in our world. No president can mediate on our behalf. No governor as great as DeSantis is can do that either. Because guess what? Your time here is short, but eternity is just that, forever. You need Jesus. Let's pray.